Welcome to the Humans Under Grace Bible Study Podcast. We're getting ready to have an old-fashioned line-on-line, precept-on-precept study of God's Word to search out those deeper truths and gain a greater understanding of the Bible. We would love for you to join us today as we dig in and learn what it is God would truly have us to know from His letter that He wrote to us. Welcome into this episode of Humans Under Grace Bible Study. God bless you. We're glad to have you. We're going to be taking off today in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the flood is in full effect, and Noah is just floating around out here waiting on the waters to go down. So we're going to ask for that understanding and clarity from God in Jesus' name, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. This word wind is ruach in Hebrew, and it's the Spirit. That Spirit of God came down and caused these things to start, the, the waters to start moving off. Verse 2, The fountains also of the deep, and the windows of heaven, or the floodgates of heaven, were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. There again, we have that number 150. You know, that seems to be a pretty important number to catch hold to, especially since in our last uh, study, Christ pointed us towards that, that this flood was very important for us to know in these end times. Verse 4. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, Ararat is, this mountain is believed to be in Turkey. And that's going to come kind of more important whenever we get into the genealogies in the next chapter. Uh, verse 5. The waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. Now, this is the one day that's mentioned in all these different days, that's not a Sabbath day. Uh, verse 6, And it came to pass at the end of the forty days, 40 means probation, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth raven, which went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Now the reason this raven went out and didn't come back, in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15, we see that a raven is an unclean bird. It's a scavenger. So it's going to go out and start cleaning up the remnants of this, you can imagine, the corpses that are out there right now. It's got plenty of places to land. It's got plenty of food to eat. And that's why it won't return. Uh, Verse 8. Also, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off off the face of the ground. So he sent this dove out because the dove's not going to get on anything like that. It's not a scavenger. It's going to look for fresh food, uh, for fresh seeds or, or a nice branch to land on and to, to dwell in. Verse 9, But the dove found no rest for her, the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into him unto the ark. So this dove wasn't going to land on any of these corpses. It's not, it's a clean animal. It knows better than that. Verse 10. And he stayed yet another seven days. Seven is spiritual completeness in biblical numerics. And again, he, went, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. 
So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. They were going, they were going down at this point. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. The waters had gone far enough down that the dove could nest. It could find uh, foliage or whatever, seeds and, and stuff to eat. And so it could go make a life for itself now. 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the earth was dry. Verse 14, And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. This is exactly one year and ten days after the waters came upon the earth. Verse 15, And God spake to Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Now these are eight Adamic souls. You've got Noah and his wife, three sons, and their three wives. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it speaks of through this flood, there were eight Adamic souls of, of, this genea, of this genealogical line here, of this bloodline that were saved from out of this flood to carry on this genealogy that were pure from them, from Adam to them all the way to Christ. Verse 17. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful, and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons with and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. Uh, verse 20, and Noah builded an ark, uh, an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast, of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That don't mean that all seven pairs that he took, he, that he offered all of them because that would have killed them all out. What it means is he took basically the firstlings of each one, the, the first fruits. Verse 21, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Cold and heat and summer and winter, and day and night, all these times, that right there, that verse really just blows out this global warming thing. God's going to see to it that we have everything within a season. I guess climate change happens every year. In the summer, it warms up. In the winter, it cools off. That's, the, that's it. That's what you got. All right, so chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Right there, it's letting you know it's okay to eat meat that is to be received. Uh, one thing on this is that just because God said 
everything is going to obey you don't mean you can go out there and grab a, a bear up by the paw and think that it's going to be okay. You see, these animals can't read. Just because we have dominion over them don't mean that they understand we have dominion over them. And you're supposed to exercise a little common sense. So whenever you go out there, if you're getting attacked by an animal and you say, hey, God gave me dominion over you, that animal ain't read this Bible. You've got to be smarter than that. You see, they, they men have created ways of subduing the animals, and that's what we're supposed to do, not just thinking we're going to go out there and, and handle snakes and stuff, and the snake ain't going to bite you. If you jack with a snake, a snake's going to bite you. All right, verse 4. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 16, what this is talking about is the to properly bleed an animal. When you're butchering an animal, you're, there's a, a proper way to bleed one so that the meat doesn't putrefy. The life thereof is the blood. And it's saying get all the blood out, you know, allow it to, to drain properly, okay, and before you eat it. Make sure that it's not putrefied, or it will make you sick. Uh, verse 5, And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. This can, this can get a little confusing in the, the wording of this verse, but what that's saying is the wages of sin is death. And as God said in verse 21 of chapter 8 that we just read, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man in the flesh is going to sin. We all fall short, and that's why we need Christ. Christ shed his blood on the cross to give us a salvation, that grace, through grace, we receive that salvation. At this point in time, though, Christ had not sacrificed himself. So what God is saying here, the wages of sin is death to purify oneself Something must take their place. In this case, it were it was the animals, the lambs or the doves or the what have you in the sacrifices that would their lifeblood would cover the sin of that individual. Now I'll say again, Christ became that lamb. Christ became that sacrifice. His blood was spilt for one and all times to cover all sin. So there's no need today for anyone to be sacrificing anything. As a matter of fact, it is sacrilegious and blasphemy to sacrifice an animal to think that that animal is going to cover your sins whenever Emmanuel, God with us, did that for us. Then at that point, you would be saying, well, this cow might be a little better than uh, Christ. That's not a good place to be. All right, so verse 6 of chapter 9. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he him. This is basically do not kill. And whenever we get in Deuteronomy, the penalty for murder, and whenever I say do not kill, that is fanyance, that is criminal homicide. That is not a, a killing as in, in war. It's not a killing as in defending your family or yourself. But it is a lying in wait, just evil, killing just to kill. And that is not, you don't do that. That is a sin. And in Deuteronomy, it is given that those who should murder in that type of case, just out of evilness, are to be dispatched. God is their judge. 
and they are not to be, God said, send them to me and this will cease happening among you. And some people might say, well, I'm not so sure that, you know, it does any good to execute. A lot of people are against capital punishment these days. Well, if you have a rapist or a murderer out there that's going around killing folks or raping folks, and the reason why I bring rape up is because it is the same penalty as murder. And if capital punish, if capital, capital, ah, capital punishment, there we go, I'll get it out here, is exercised on that person, they're not going to kill anybody else. They're not going to rape anybody else. And you might say, well, that's just one. Well, that one just improved the safety of folks around them at the point that they were dispatched. All right, so let's move on. Verse 7, And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And God spake to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I, twice for emphasis, establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, for all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. Everything. The entire world is given in this covenant. Verse 11, And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. He's not going to flood the entire earth ever again. Verse 12, let me, let me back up. God, this kind of alludes also back to the catapult, that overthrow that Paul would speak of, of the foundations of the world. We covered it in the first lecture of Genesis chapter 1, that at Satan's rebellion, instead of God killing a third of his children, he would overthrow that time and overthrow that rebellion and flood that world, as it's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 4, starting at about verse 18, that he, would, that he destroyed that age, that eon of time, with a flood. Uh, in the Greek, it is kataklouzo, and it means a raging wave, being dashed down by a raging wave. Then here again, at the second rebellion of Satan and his angels, or his little minions, God destroyed the world this time also with, a, with the flood. Now he's saying, that's it. I'm not going to do it again. Verse 11, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. 13, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. That rainbow, that, that bow of glory, the, the Shekinah glory that is also mentioned in Revelations. In a couple of spots, you've got to be careful which ones you're looking at. Verse 14, and it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Not just this man or that man, 
or whatever, but everything, every flesh upon the earth, this covenant is established with. Verse 17, And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. The son And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Now why would that be put in there like that? We're fixing to find out that there was a little kind of a, a mischievous little act that went on here. Verse 19, These are the sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. Now what is seeing the nakedness of your father? If you flip over to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. This describes, this is God's law, and it describes what it is, what happens when you uncover your father's nakedness. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. And a man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now this is many years later after Noah, so that law had not been established yet. But that explains to you to uncover your father's nakedness is to lie with his wife. So what has Ham just done? He uncovered his father's nakedness. That's why it's so important that it was pointed out twice that Ham is the father of Canaan because Ham laying with his mom impregnated her and through that came Canaan. Now let me just add one more thing too here. There is a teaching that I, is ridiculous that through this incestuous affair of Ham and his mom that there was a race created and it is a ridiculous just ignorant, I, I don't know how it is possible for someone to believe this or to even teach this. Noah and his family were of a pure genealogy. It don't matter what type of affair they had, they cannot change their genealogy. If you have a purebred of anything and it lies with a purebred of that same thing, it's not going to create a different race or a different pedigree it's going to stay right in the same thing so this is not that they're there this teaching that i'm talking about says that ham that that canaan was the offspring of an incestuous affair and it and he was the first of a certain race i'm sorry but that is just ridiculous that in in genesis chapter one god created all of mankind, and he looked, and it was very good. He was very pleased. He didn't need a curse to come up with somebody else, okay? And it wasn't even God that cursed Canaan. We're fixing to get into that. So verse 23, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid upon their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their fathers, and their faces were backwards, and they saw not their father's nakedness. So they didn't go in there and take advantage either. They, you know, they did what was right. They covered their mama up, and went on about their business. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he, not God, but Noah, said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, 
and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So you can see, you can see through Noah. Noah was very mad at the fact that what had happened and everything, but he's the one that cursed Canaan, not God. And it, he, he cursed him to be uh, basically below his counterparts. And, I mean, in a way, he's uh, a half-brother to all of them. It really it gets, that's a messed up thing. Anyway, let's, let's just move on. All right, so chapter 10, we're going to get into the genealogies of Noah and his sons. And as we're working through this, um, I think it's kind of important to mention where it's believed that these sons settled, not necessarily founded, but where they ended up settling out. Uh, so as we get into this, I'm gonna, we'll, I'll mention the country or region that is believed that each of these were, were ended up at. All right, so Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now these are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were the sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, or Gomer, which is believed to be the Celts, or ended up there. And Magog, which is the Siths, South Russia and Ukraine. Madai, which is the Medes, or Iran. Javan, which would be Greece. And Tubal, Iberia, which would be modern Georgia today. Meshach, believed to be Armenia. And Tyrus, believed to be the Thracians. And the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, which would be believed to be Scandinavia. And Raphath, which would be believed to be around Romania. And Togerma, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, or Elisha, uh, South Greece. And Tarshish, South Spain. Kittim, Cyprus. And Dodanim, which is Turkey. If they landed in Mount Ararat, which is in Turkey, he didn't go very far. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, believed to be migrated to Ethiopia, and Mizraim, South Egypt. Now there is a study that you could do on your own. It's a study of the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S the Hyksos, and they are called the Shepherd Kings. Whenever we get into the story of Jacob, of excuse me, of Joseph, and find where he took a wife in Egypt, that study will become very important. So we'll get to it later, but if you want to do a little little home study, just check out, however you do it, the, the study of the Hyksos, or the Shepherd Kings. All right, so continuing on in verse 6. And Foot, which is North Africa, and Canaan, Palestine, Jordan area. Later on, whenever we get into the migrations after the Exodus, you see the Canaanites from the sons of Canaan become play a very important role in that area of the Promised Land. Uh, verse 7, And the sons of Cush were Seba, which borders Cush, and Hevala and Sabta and Rayama and Septeca. Now, there's not much written on where they may have settled, but it's believed that they were right around that same area. 
and the sons of Rehoboam were Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. Now, this is believed that his, well, let me see, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. We'll just, we'll go on down and then we'll explain more about where he's from. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this sounds great, like he was going out and saving souls and, oh, he was just, he was doing great things for the kingdom of God. It's actually opposite of that. He was hunting those who believe in the Lord. So a mighty hunter before the Lord, he was perverting all the ways that he could possibly do, and he was basically a type for the Antichrist at this time. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So this is the beginning, this is the foundation of the city of Babylon. Babel means confusion. And Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. This land of Shinar is about modern-day Iraq. You see, Bab- uh, what is the, ba- uh, Baghdad, yes, Baghdad is about 40 to 50 miles from the original site of Babylon. There's a very interesting tie between a former king of Iraq, or dictator, and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, I believe. You see, in, in, in that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar mentions that he was his hair had grown long. He was a mighty king, but then he was kind of abandoned. He was put out. And his hair had grown long, and he lived in the field, and he was acting, he basically was living like a wild animal. And I don't know how many of you remember, not too many years ago, this same leader of this same region of Iraq was found after many days of running in a hole with his hair grown out and his fingernails kind of living like a wild animal. So it's interesting to see the repetition of God's word, even as it has to do with modern history, modern-day events. All right, so verse 11. Out of the land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth and Calah. Now Nineveh, as many of you may know, is where Jonah would go to save the Ninevites, where God would send Jonah to. And he didn't want to go there because he knew that the Ninevites were going to be a great nation and would eventually, he understood the prophecies, and they would eventually come in and take over the ten northern tribes of Israel. This is the Assyrians, basically, is what we're talking about here. And we all know that the Assyrian king came in in the book of Kings and took over those ten northern tribes. And then took them captive, then they went north, and then continued, after they were basically freed, continued their migration north over the Caucasus Mountains, settling majority of Europe, and even migrating over into America of today. So when people will say, well, you know, Israel's over here, well, God promised Abraham that his seed would be more numerous than the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven, and that the country that's called Israel today is very easily numbered. Now, that covenant would not be, would basically not stand to that. Whereas if you follow the migrations, then you see that there's an innumerable amount of Israelites that just don't know who they are. All right, so verse 12. In resin between Nineveh and Kela, the same as a great city. 
13. And Mizraim beget Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Nephtuhim, and Parthusim, and Kalsuhim, out of whom was Philistim, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan beget Sodom, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite. Now, the Jebusite, David would end up conquering Jebus, which was founded by the Jebusites, and then later named the city Jerusalem. So this is that area that we're talking about here. And remember that these tribes or these, these children of Canaan are in this Jordan-Philistine area right now, Palestine, Palestine and around there. And the Amorite and the Gergesite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite. And many of these were had a ban placed on them by God later on uh, after the Exodus in the book of 1 Samuel. And the Arvite and the Zimmerite and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of Canaan, uh, the Canaanites spread abroad. And the borders of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest out of Gerar unto Gaza. Now you might know a lot about Gaza today because it is a very hostile territory. Even to this day, there are many battles fought over this one little spot. There's still turmoil because of this spot. As I goest out of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm sure y'all have heard of that before, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto, even unto Lasha, these are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, and their countries, and in their nations. Unto Shem also, unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. Now Eber means coming from the flood. The brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem were Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. And the children of Aram were Uz, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. Now Eber also, this is where the word Hebrew comes from. And unto Eber were born two sons, the name of one, Peleg, and in his, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktam. Now there's two things on Peleg. One, one belief is that the, at that time that the earth was divided is because this is when Nimrod built the Tower of Babel and God confounded everybody. They, he, he confused everybody's speech, so then at that point, through languages, the nations were divided. Also, Joktam ended up migrating into now the modern-day uh, Arabic area. And so some believe that that's why that this line divided at that point and Joktam left the, uh, the family. Verse 26, And Joktam beget Almudad, and Shelef, and Hazarmavath, and Jerah, and Hadaram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obel, and Abimel, and Sheba, and Over, o- Ophir, and Hivala, and Jobab. All these were the sons of J- Joktan. And their dwelling was from Mesha, as thou go as thou goest unto Sefer, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, and after their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, 
and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. All right, so we're going to stop there for the day. We'll pick it up in verse or in chapter 11 in our next study. I know that the genealogies are very dry. They just they get pretty boring and repetitive. But the thing about them is this word of God follows one man's family from Adam all the way to Christ. Even though there were many, many other families in the world, to understand that genealogy and to be able to follow that genealogy and to see other genealogy, see other families come into it and, and leave from it and all this, just the, the interaction of the world with this family, to understand that and be able to follow it is that key of David that opens doors that no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open. So even though they are boring, they are still very important. I really appreciate y'all for sticking in there and making it through that. As I said, we'll pick it up in chapter 11 in the next lecture. God bless y'all and have a great day. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Humans Under Grace Bible Study Podcast. If you have any questions, you can go to our website at www.humansundergrace.com and under the Contact Us page, submit your question. Also, you can write to us at Humans Under Grace, P.O. Box 1467, Tatum, Texas 75691. Thank you and God bless you.